Welcome to Sustainable No Fungible Talk, a show about all things DAO and Web3 from the team of Sustainable, which includes me, your host Clarice Cho. Our expert guest today is Felix Hartmann. Hartmann is a German-American tech entrepreneur, futurist, and asset manager. He served as the managing partner of Hartmann Capital, a frontier tech investment firm. Home to both one of the first crypto asset hedge funds and metaverse venture funds. Next to the fund, Hartman sits on the DAO of Enzyme Finance and 88MPH, founded the Crypto Academy, and published the best-selling dystopian fiction novel Dark Age. Hartman's mission is to guide the world away from a self-inflicted dystopia and towards a thriving future. So it's really a pleasure to have you here. Would you please share with our audience your background and how do you get started with blockchain investments? Sure. Nice to meet you all. Yeah, my name is Felix Hartman. I am the managing partner of Hartman Capital. Back in 2018, I started one of the first crypto asset hedge funds. And so this was back in 2018. Since then, we've grown to also add a metaverse venture fund, which nowadays, you know, we were maybe one of the first three. There still aren't that many, but, you know, that's essentially, I've been a futurist my whole life. Initially, I was, you know, really interested in things like, you know, AI, space, robotics as a young kid already. And I found that, you know, investing and trading is perhaps the best way to express these futuristic ideas as, you know, investment theses. And so I've, what started as, you know, passion as young has turned into now going on to our fifth year at the firm. Well, I see it. That's very impressive. And you mentioned you studied Hartman Digital Asset Fund back in 2018. Would you like to share with us more about your Hartman Digital Asset Fund and your new Hartman Metaverse Venture Fund? What's your investment thesis on those two funds? Yeah. So Hartman Digital Assets, you know, it's it's a it's a long biased multi-strategy crypto fund. And so that means it's been really evolving a lot over these past few years. You know, we have a very clear constraints on like, you know, how much exposure we have. We have very clear constraints on like what kind of strategies we practice, but how we utilize those strategies really need to, I guess, varies with the market, right? And so right now in this current market environment, you know, we're now in a you know, we're in a post three arrows world and a post FCX world where like a lot of things that have happened this year. And so a lot of our focus has been going into long shorts, where we believe that there are some assets that are undervalued at this point, like for example, in Ethereum that is producing around $5.5 billion worth of revenues a year. But at the same time, there's still so many tokens out there, so many investments out there that are just fundamentally overvalued. Many of them are, to put it plump, Ponzi schemes that are still perhaps a few billion too, value, too, too overvalued. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity that even if the market stays sideways, even if we have a little bit more bear market ahead of ourselves, you know, alpha can be generated by finding what's undervalued and betting on it, and then also finding what's overvalued and betting against it. And that's something that not too many funds do, but I think long short is prob- probably the most valuable approach that one can practice right now. And so that's on the, the digital asset front. In terms of thematics within digital assets, I would say right now DeFi is perhaps the most interesting particularly coming from the angle that, and, and DeFi was something that I thought was perhaps the, the worst performer in the last, you know, maybe 12 months, 18 months. But now that, you know, centralized exchanges have had failure after failure after failure, 
I think it's proven that DeFi is actually working as it was intended. You know, we had Celsius go down and BlockFi go down. Aave never went down, right? We had FTX go down, but, you know, GMX and DYDX didn't go down. So, you know, all the DeFi counterparts to the centralized exchange failures have worked as intended. And so thematically, the focus has been shifting a little bit back to DeFi on the digital asset front. And as it pertains to the Metaverse Fund, you know, with the Metaverse Fund, we've been really, really focused on XR, meaning mixed reality, so both VR and AR, because I think that's a segment that is too underappreciated within the Metaverse. Like when most people think Metaverse, all they think about is like decentralized gaming, things like Axe Infinity. But to me, the Metaverse is way bigger than that. And one of the, the first core theses that we really invested in was mixed reality. And so we've backed everything from the infrastructure for virtual concerts to the number one digital fashion marketplace with DressX to like, you know, developer tools for XR with Shapes XR and so forth. So Felix, can you share with us some portfolio companies that you would like to highlight with Hatman Metaverse Venture Fund? Sure. Yeah, there's a number. So, so two in particular, because, you know, I think when people think metaverse, on one hand, they think it's very abstract. On, on the other hand, a lot of times people think it's, you know, it's all ideas and there's no tractional revenue yet. But, you know, two of our portfolio companies really stand out. On one hand, we have AddressX, which is the, the number one leading digital fashion marketplace. Where already now they have hundreds of thousands of users. They have sold, I don't know if they've sold over a million units yet, but they've sold hundreds of thousands of units, even within platforms like Roblox, they've sold tens of thousands of units. They're one of the only startups where you can buy digital fashion outfits on the Meta Avatar store. And so what's really impressive about them is that not only are they number one digital fashion marketplace, but also within that marketplace, they make up about 40% of the goods, meaning they are also a brand. And so the reason I bring them up as a very unique company in that front is that not only are they dominating that blue ocean, but also quarter over quarter over quarter, their revenues have been going up and up and up. And so that, that's impressive to me because even though we're in a bear market right now, even though NFTs have kind of like lost a lot of their glow, this is a company that's still growing and that's feed, finding real utility beyond the speculation. Because, you know, people bought NFTs most of the time just because they thought the NFT would be worth more money. But people aren't buying digital fashion NFTs for that reason. People are buying digital fashion NFTs maybe because they want to dress their avatars in these virtual worlds differently. Maybe they're buying the, uh, the fashion NFTs because they can use AR, augmented reality, to, to like try out different outfits when they are on Snapchat or on Instagram. And so that's been a really, really strong team that has shown more and more traction, more partnerships. The most recent big partnership with, was with Coca-Cola, where every time somebody bought a Coca-Cola bottle, they got a, a dress X outfit along with it. And you know, growing revenues, more partnerships, and so forth. So they've been doing really well. Another one is ShapesXR. ShapesX is the currently the number one XR tooling prototyping platform, where essentially already now, you know, companies like Logitech and Meta are spending a lot of hours a week using ShapesXR to build, you know, to prototype virtual worlds, essentially. And the way it works is that just like, you know, people use platforms like Figma to prototype out apps and websites, people are now using ShapesXR to prototype out XR experiences. And the number is something like this. They already have, I believe, over 200,000 active users. The average meta developer that's building Horizons is spending 16 hours a week using ShapesXR. And, you know, they are, they are only, they're only just about right now one year old. So in one year, they've gotten all this market traction. And so this way, you know, with all these companies we're backing, not only are we covering things like content on the digital fashion front, but we're also covering infrastructure that is, you know, super, super scalable. So those are two I found very interesting and both are also highly capitalized where they have, you know, three plus years of runway. 
so that even if we are in a recession, they can stand through a lot and, if anything, get more and more market share. So one question we care deeply about is why now? Why do you think mm. it's the right timing for companies and investors to dive into the metaverse world? I think there's a multi-part answer to this. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the genie's out of the bottle. The, the, you're not going to turn back the clock on the metaverse for a couple of reasons. One, Mark Zuckerberg literally rebranded his entire company, Facebook, to Meta. That is, a, that is perhaps the biggest scale career risk the tech world has ever seen. You've never seen a company of this size, you know, kind of like change its entire course and its entire brand in the, in the, in the pursuit of making an entire industry happen, right? And so the idea of VR becoming a global medium is already set in its ways. Secondly, every other big tech company is joining in on this. You have Apple coming up with a mixed reality headset. You have Place, uh, Sony come up with a PlayStation VR 2. You have ByteDance come up with a Pico 4. You have Lenovo come with a mixed reality headset. You have HTC come with a new headset. You have Meta come with a Quest Pro and the Oculus 3. And so there's going to be this very, very massive push in the next 6 to 12 months on VR as a medium because you have perhaps a dozen different big tech companies trying to enter the space. And that's further solidified by the actual numbers that Facebook was able to accomplish. You know, over the last four years, the amount of headsets being sold has doubled year by year. In 2018, it was 1 million headsets. In 2019, it was 2 million headsets. By 2020, it was 4 million headsets. Last year, it was 8 million headsets. And so the number's been doubling year over year with just meta in the game. Now, with all these other players entering in, there's going to be a much, much bigger race. And then to put a layer on top of that, you know, digitalization has been a trend that didn't start with the metaverse, right? The metaverse essentially is almost a new label for mixed reality meets Web3. Digitalization has started decades ago already. And we saw the first migration with social media where people took their offline lives online, where already now they're spending more time in the digital world than they spent offline. And so the metaverse only accentuates that more where all of a sudden, you know, people care just as much about the digital identities than as they care about their physical identities. And so when we, when we capitalize on this trend of digital, digitally native values and people spending more time in a digitally native world, it becomes quite obvious that over the next few years, the economy of this digitally native world will become bigger than the economy of the physical world. And what better time to make those bets than at the depths of a bear market, at the depths of a beginning recession, right? Nearly every tech stock out there is down 60, 70, 80%. The crypto market is down 80%. And so you are probably not going to see more, like more, more useful valuations and also more power in the hands of a VC or investor to dictate the right terms that will be beneficial over the long run while also filtering out all the bad builders, all the bad founders, and all the people with bad intentions. At this point, the only people left in these industries are the people that genuinely want to innovate, that genuinely want to build. Thank you, Felix. You launched one of the first crypto asset hedge fund in 2018. You have also been an early investor and adopter of Bitcoin, DeFi, decentralized gaming, and DAOs. How did your investment strategy and focus on blockchain and metaverse change over time? It's a great question. You know, I think crypto for the most part still has to accomplish a lot of the things it has set out to do. And so the good news is that we're still early. And in fact, we're seeing that today, you know, a lot of the crypto prices are very similar to 2018. And so if one had missed the boat on crypto, you just got a time machine to go back to 2018 and try it again. You know, ultimately, I think the, the events of the last week with FTX, if anything, have proven that 
transparency, like transparent on-chain finance is more important than ever. Because here's the truth, you know, while FTX had a bank run and FTX collapsed, I wouldn't be shocked if there are major banks or major centralized financial institutions outside of the realm of crypto that have similar financials as FTX had, except they're so big where people do not challenge it, where people don't question it and where, where that bank run never happened in the first place. If every bank in the US had a bank run, I wonder if all of them would be able to service the withdrawals. I highly doubt that they would. Right. And so if anything, this was a wake up call for the industry to realize that, hey, it is now more important than ever that we have decentralized exchanges that can handle institutional throughput. It's more important than ever that we have decentralized lending markets that can handle billions of dollars of lending volume. Right. And so I think my my thesis for crypto has always stayed the same where it's more important than ever for us to have self-sovereignty, to have transparency, to have, you know, sustainable tokenomics where we where we have self-custody and in all the other factors that actually make crypto what it is we can't you know we the the problem we make in bull markets a lot of a lot of times is that we make concessions in the wrong places meaning we accept blockchains with faster speed higher throughput but in exchange give up the decentralization if you give up the decentralization then there's no point in using a blockchain in the first place and so I think going back to the roots of focusing on chains that are decentralized, that enable self-custody, it will go a very long way. You know, this year has been quite eventful for the blockchain world, from Lunar Terra to recent FTX event. So how did you stay ahead of market moves? Yeah, you know, we, 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 we've been able to, you know, keep out of the fire for virtually all of them, except for FTX. We did get burned a little bit on FTX, but we've been able to avoid everything else. You know, Terra Loot, like nearly everything had some form of smoke before things went wrong, right? Different levels of smoke, but for example, if Luna, Luna is something we were concerned about as early as November of last year. November of last year, I started realizing that Luna was expanding too fast for its own good. And so we decided that we would sell it as soon as the new year came. And so as soon as the new year came, we sold all our Luna. And it was very simple math, actually, where you looked at how much the anchor yield reserves had left. And you could see that the, the anchor yield reserve. So we have to like dial it back for those people that don't know the full setup of Terra Luna. Because Terra Luna was essentially the first domino in this chain of events that happened, right? Terra Luna was a, had a stable coin, essentially, at the heart of it. It was a layer one blockchain with a stable coin. Now, what did people use that stablecoin for? The truth is 85% of all the Luna stablecoins, the UST, was being used in a savings protocol, a savings DAP, essentially, uh, that paid people 20% per annum. That, of course, was highly attractive because 20% per annum is something you can't find anywhere for a savings account, right? Now, the real question people had to ask is, where does the 20% come from? And the reality was a lot of that money was pre-funded and that money already ran out in Q4. Where did they bring new money from? They, they sold, the market sold a billion dollars worth of Luna to replenish it. So clearly that's not sustainable, right? And so I looked at, okay, when do they run out of money again? At the end of April, right? And so I said, we gotta be out of there beforehand. And lo and behold, of course, as we got close to the end of April, what did they say? They said, okay, let's reduce how much interest we pay, right? To extend the runway a little bit longer. But as they started reducing interest, People got cold feet. They said, well, if they started reducing interest, could they could reduce it again and again. 
And so since 85% of all the UST out there was an anchor and that money started fleeing, you started having this problem where there was 20, roughly 20 billion UST backed by 60 billion worth of Luna or 50 billion at that time even, right? That was a very different equation than when we backed them. When we backed them, there was almost at one point 100 billion worth of Luna and only 2 billion worth of UST. This was roughly in like October, November. So completely different economics. And so, you know, I started seeing the smoke saying this is an incredibly dangerous tokenomic setup that is unsustainable. And once people start heading for the door, there will not be enough money to fulfill all that, right? So that was Terra Luna. And that's why we had zero exposure to any anchor, UST, Luna, and so forth. So that was fairly predictable just by the math, right? Because it was public. What came next was, you know, Three Arrows and Celsius, you know, because they both had too much exposure to Luna, for example. And then also, you know, Three Arrows had loans to most of the market makers out there. So the way we avoided that was by simply not engaging with Three Arrows and also simply not trusting most of the lenders out there. You know, as an institutional credit jo- shop, you know, I always viewed Celsius, Plugfa, and so forth. They, for, for one, had very much retail products, but then also when you looked in the, into their practices of, you know, how deep the diligence that they do on giving out loans, it just wasn't enough for us to bank money there. You know, what came next? I mean, FTX is the only one that's been, I think, catching most people by surprise because they are, weren't obvious red flags. You know, now in hindsight, people will say, oh, look, it's a bunch of 20-year-olds. But listen, most big companies were founded by 20-year-olds in the last decades, right? You could you could have said the same thing about Facebook. Ultimately, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried played his role as an actor so incredibly well where he was in, in, he was in front of the Senate Right. I mean, he lied under oath in front of the Senate, which most people wouldn't like if he, I will, I will believe that somebody's lying on a podcast. I will, I wouldn't usually believe that somebody's lying in front of Senate. Right. Equally, they had some of the biggest PE firms back in them from Sequoia to Tiger to SoftBank. Right. So there was a lot of, you know, there, there was so much, so many acts to, I guess, lead people astray. And the fact is, they even let people super close to them astray, where two famous examples recently were Multicoin. You know, Multicoin worked extremely closely with Sam Bankman-Fried and, and Solana, and they lost about 55% of the hedge fund this month, right? And then another one was Skybridge, Scarmucci, right? Scarmucci sold 30% of Skybridge to Sam Bankman-Fried, and even he got caught up in it, right? And so it's been, that one I think is the biggest shocker for the industry, but if anything, it's taught us that as the old Bitcoin saying goes, don't trust, verify, right? And so no matter how big of a public image somebody creates of themselves, whether that's the regulators, investors, partners, capital, right? I mean, the, I, I don't think the least factor that led people to believe FTX was solvent was the fact that they tried to bail out Voyager for $1.2 billion, right? So the assumption is, well, if they have $1.2 billion in cash lying around to bail out others, this should not be an issue, right? But now it makes sense because it was customer funds. So that's, and that's where the line between insolvency and fraud lies, right? So FTX would have never been insolvent if it wasn't for fraud. But yeah, and so even there, you know, we all draw our lessons. And I think the biggest part is that everybody, including ourselves, is doing even stricter counterparty due diligence and also splitting up risk more amongst counterparties, which of course, even nowadays is, is, is tricky since Binance, for example, now makes up a vast majority of all the both spot and futures volumes. 
Thanks, Felix. Let, let's talk more about metaverse. So we know one essential success factor in metaverse as well as the app is community. So how do you think metaverse platform and the apps can attract greater a quantity of daily active users and encourage more on-platform transactions? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, the most important thing for most metaverse is that there needs to be something to do. And this is where I think most generation one metaverses have failed. You know, you look at platforms like Decentraland or Sandbox, and to be honest, there's nothing really to do there. Most of these platforms have only a couple hundred users, maybe a couple single digit thousand users. And why is that? Because, you know, you log into, I always ask people, you know, A, have you ever been on Decentraland? Some people say no, some people say yes. When they say yes, ask, how long were you on there? And the average answer I get is about less than two minutes. And so like, the, the, why is that? You know, Because again, there isn't enough to do. The only thing you can do right now in Decentraland is to go to Decentral Games and you, know, you play some rounds of poker there. What needs to happen for Metaverse to, keep, to gain traction and keep traction is for there to be actually repeatable and consumable content, right? So that, that would be, for example, for games, right? Like whether it's on our portfolio, we've got XLab, which is one of the most played VR is esports games, to we have one that's a more Web3 native game, The Bornless. They recently hosted a big tournament with all the different like yield guilds and esports teams and so forth. Or if you're not like a game, but you're more of a platform like DressX where you sell digital fashion, right? Well, yes, then you need to really build your digital fashion community, right? Like the early adopters that, that care about digital fashion, that want to collect it, that want to wear it and so forth, right? And so it's your job to really curate those communities. Ultimately, everybody, no matter whether you're an infrastructure company or your content company, you have to build your community out. But community without a product doesn't work. And I think that's what people tried to do last year, where uh, people overemphasize community and underemphasize product. And this was really big in 2021. They said, oh, who cares about products? All about community. And like where you've got this Discord server and you've got the NFTs. But then what, right? I mean, the people people bought the NFTs not because they cared about the community. They bought the NFTs because they thought they're going to make a return, right? Now that the returns are gone in the bear market, the real community starts showing face, right? And so, and, and ultimately, communities, a community revolves around, around like a, a community has to revolve around something, right? A core product in the center whether that is the number one digital fashion marketplace or one of the best esports games or music in the metaverse, like concerts and so forth, right? There's got to be a theme, something. And so I think finding the balancing act between the two is what will win both in bull markets and bear markets. Bull markets, you can get away with little product and high community, but in a bear market, it's probably heavier product less fluff community that will go a long way. When we're talking about products, so... What kind of product in Metaverse and the app do you think could likely to impact the future of working and living? So what kind of challenges are we facing in order to reach that vision? Well, you know, first of all, I think the Metaverse is is literally built. It's, it's To me, the Metaverse is the digitally native world. And so the products being built for the Metaverse are meant for the Metaverse, meaning I, I, I don't think the goal is to create products that impact the, our lives in the physical world, right? So for example, let's say with DressX, I know there's the whole concept, of, like for example, in digital fashion, there's a concept called fidgetal, where you can have an, a, an item that's both physical and digital, right? Where maybe I own, maybe I buy a real dress and I get the, the digital NFT with it. Or maybe I bought a digital dress and I can put into production 
into the physical. The, the time when the metaverse hits mainstream is, is essentially the same time when most people spend more time in those digital worlds, right? And so how does it happen? I think it's a very smooth progression because already in the last six months, a lot of big things have happened on established social networks, right? One, you can already now, you know, change your profile picture on Twitter to being NFT. You can already now, you know, make Instagram posts with NFTs and even sell them, right? Those are things that weren't around 12 months ago. Those are brand new. And so what's starting to happen is that, you know, the Web2 giants are joining in that metaverse race, and that is making it way, way easier to make that pivot, make that transition, right? Because like, if we take that digital fashion as an example, right? When will people care about buying digital clothes? Well, when they can display them in more places, right? So for example, if I can now display my digital fashion collection on Instagram, whether that's through native posts or through AR wearing them, it makes a lot more sense. It's going to get more users. It's going to get more traction. Equally, if one of the worlds that they integrated with, like let's say, you know, you know, I, I know I don't like them, but let's say a Decentraland sandbox, a Ready Player Me or whatever, right? As these platforms get more users, get more traction, then all these auxiliary services that enable them, like again, digital fashion, right, will also get more traction. When it comes to VR, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, there's so many um, tailwinds that will make it possible for VR to accelerate. That too will make it easier, for example, for virtual concerts in Red Pill to have, you know, a huge amount of traction. You know, next year already, they have a, a big lineup, a lineup set up with Binge, a streaming provider where, you know, performers like Cascade and Diplo will perform inside of Red Pill. So like we're already moving from, you know, small artists in the metaverse to now like really big artists performing in virtual stages, right? So, and that's happening even though there's a bear market. That's happening even though the global economy is in recession. It's happening even though Meta's having layoffs, right? So that's what I'm paying attention to. Like even though we're in a global macro cooldown, who's still building and who's seeing this big acceleration, right? And most of portfolio companies are seeing that. And so that's what, makes, what also makes me really, really bullish about it. Thanks, Felix. So you say like metaverse, you believe metaverse are more in the digital world at this phase. So how do you believe like metaverse Web3 initiative or blockchain can play a role in addressing like real world issues, like sustainability issues? It does. So like th those two are not disconnected, right? And I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. Three examples, right? So sustainability, right? What are some of the worst things for our environment that the average person consumes or does, right? I mean, one, it's overconsumption, over travel, fast fashion, right? Those, those, are, those are like three factors, for example, that contribute to pollution, resource use, resource strain, and so forth, right? Well, you know, people that travel, well, both, let's say travel for one, right? People travel for leisure, they travel for work, right? Now that we live in a Zoom world already, right? People travel a lot less for work because they say, hey, it's much easier to jump on a Zoom call. Now, instead of doing just Zoom calls, if you have, you know, fully immersive virtual worlds, forget about most travel because now you can have a full-on, like, authentically feeling business meeting in, in VR. Same thing, maybe, in, you know, if a family before thought about, oh, I want, we want to travel to Rome and, you know, see ancient Rome or travel to Italy or whatever, right? Imagine they can have the same experience for a fraction of cost, for a fraction of the, the ecological impact by going in VR and experiencing all kinds of historic sites, right? So that's on the travel aspect. When it comes to, and I don't want to overpass push the digital fashion, but I mean, there is a real point here too, where digital fast fashion, 
right? Like the Forever 21s of the world, the Sauras and so forth, right? They cause a lot of pollution because people buy a clothing item, they wear it once, they wear it twice, five times, and then it's worn out, it goes to the trash pile, right? Digital fashion solves that too, where, you know, if people buy outfits, like a lot of times people buy outfits for the picture they take once or twice for Instagram or whatever, right? They don't necessarily care that much for weighing it more than that. Now, if what if instead of like, you know, buying an outfit for one time, what if you can buy a digital fashion outfit, you dress yourself virtually with AR, no resources get wasted, right? And the same thing can be applied to many, many other consumables where, you know, how much impact does, you know, a physical concert have versus a digital concert? So I think the digital analog to virtually everything is way more sustainable, consumes way less, way less resources, both of the pocketbook of the consumer and the resource of the planet. Thank you, Felix. So one thing that impressed me most about you and your heart maintaining is how you constantly stay aware and alert of market move and how you regularly communicate with the public and investors and help us to be more informed about the blockchain industry. So I personally follow your show, The Felix Hartman Show, and I learned a lot from your great insight. Would you like to share with us more about Hartman Show and how you get started with the YouTube channel? Sure. You know, I've, I've always believed that having a media arm to your business is super important to just educate people on what you're doing. And, and also an industry like crypto badly needs, you know, people that share the right kind of information because generally most managers, we're, we're all too busy to do this full time. And the people that do do it full time, they don't have the same insights as us. And so, you know, I've always ran social media back then. I first started with like, you know, Twitter and Instagram, but eventually I said, hey, it's time for podcasts. And so in April, we started the Felix Hartman show right here out of the studio. We do this, you know, ideally, you know, we, we've so far, we've released about 20 episodes covering founders of our portfolio to other managers I respect to founders in crypto, to now we've also launched other segments such as what we call Inside the War Room, which we do like two, twice a month maybe, where we talk about like what's actually happening behind the scenes. You know, what kind of trades are we looking at in the crypto space? What are recent news events happened? How are we interpreting the things happening at the Fed and so forth? And so, yeah, we're trying to give as much information as possible, both about what we see in the world of crypto, metaverse, macro, simply to help, help people navigate through these like really new emerging industries and also lately treacherous waters because, you know, without the right insights, it can be pretty overwhelming what's going on. And so we're trying to like make it a little bit more understandable. For sharing. So is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? No, I mean, if, if anybody wants to get in touch, you know, the best way you can always, you know, follow us, whether that's on LinkedIn, on, you know, Twitter, YouTube for the for the different podcasts and so forth. We're putting a lot of materials out so you can consume it there and you're always welcome to reach out to us you know, on our website or on LinkedIn. I'm happy to be in touch. Thank you so much for joining this episode of SustainerDAO Non-Fungible Talk. This show is brought to you by SustainerDAO, a decentralized protocol that promotes social progress, environmental balance, and economic growth with blockchain technology. I'm your host, Clarice Chiu. And I'm your host, Ling Ning. If you like the content, subscribe and give us a follow on Twitter at SustainerDAO. We also have premium content, including blockchain research, member exclusive events, and more with NFT pass access. For more information, please visit our website, diesel.org.